Um, well, let me begin by uh, outlining uh, several political and political economic contexts uh, within which one should view uh, the Irish relationship with uh, the people's budget. I think the first obvious point that might be made is that for Irish, certainly for Irish home rulers, the budget was inextricably tied up with wider constitutional questions, in particular the Lord's veto and ultimately home rule. Uh, the Liberal governments of 1905-10, though formally committed to home rule, had not, in fact, placed much emphasis upon this question. And indeed, there was a suspicion amongst Irish uh, nationalists that the government was, in fact, practicing a form of constructive unionism through incremental reform rather than addressing the central constitutional claims of Irish nationality. Lloyd George was seen as being much more interested in progressive reform within a British context than in uh, a devolved parliament for Ireland. But aside from what was perceived as government indifference on the home rule question before 1910, mainstream constitutional nationalism in Ireland and in the House of Commons had limited room for political manoeuvre in other respects. It was divided and not just between constitutionalists on the one hand and separatists on the other hand. The Irish Home Rule Party, the Irish Parliamentary Party at Westminster, led by John Redmond, couldn't afford politically, aside from any other consideration, to commit itself to the budget when it was in danger of being outflanked in Ireland by hostile forces, both within and beyond constitutional nationalism. Independent constitutional nationalists were gaining electoral ground in Ireland in the later Edwardian era, and they had formidable clerical and business support there. So I think both of these factors in the first instance, what was perceived as relative liberal indifference and the risk of being outflanked from within constitutional nationalism, meant that the nominal Irish allies of the Liberal government in 1909 the Home Rulers, were unwilling to uh, offer support uh, initially over the budget. But there are other contexts, I think, that we should consider as well. Now, accepting Professor Harris's call for caution, Lloyd George and other progressives viewed the budget in terms of social redistribution. But for the Irish, there was a distinct, if related, issue of what one might call national redistribution, Irish nationalists and indeed unionists argued, particularly on the basis of the findings of the Royal Commission on Financial Relations between Britain and Ireland, the findings were published in 1896, uh, that Ireland contributed disproportionately in terms of taxation to the Union. The figure that was commonly banded around in the Edwardian period was about two and three quarter million pounds annually. This inequity it was alleged had been in place since the extension of income tax to Ireland and the hiking of duties on whiskey uh, in 1853 by, uh, ironically given his home rule convictions, Gladstone. And this was a subset of a wider nationalist argument that under the Union, Irish economic development had been suffocated by the uh, Westminster Parliament and government. One uh, common argument is that Irish industries, which had been successfully protected under the Irish 
Parliament of the 18th century were now, after 1800 and the Union, exposed to the rigours of open competition within the United Kingdom marketplace. And this argument also stressed that by the mid-19th century, any fiscal recognition of the distinctive problems of the Irish economy uh, had been erased. But not only that it had been erased, it should be restored. More politically disinterested uh, commentators beyond the Home Rule Party, such as the Girton political economist Alice Murray, believed that at the very least the burden of indirect taxation shouldered by the Irish, which was calculated to be around one-ninth of the UK total uh, by the end of the 19th century, was disproportionately heavy, given that it was calculated that Ireland contributed one-twentieth of the UK's income tax uh, at this uh, at the same time and as I'll suggest a mainstream Irish nationalist argument in 1909 was that the budget heightened this fiscal imbalance now, having said that uh, it should also be conceded that in theory and principle some of the guiding principles or central ideas within the budget uh, might have uh, uh, been thought to appeal to Irish nationalism. Land taxation had some appeal. The Irish leader John Redmond uh, in November 1909 on the third reading debate acknowledged that we approach this budget as people who are thoroughly friendly to the principle of land taxes. And of course the Irish nationalism of this era was defined by the issue of land defined by the issue of agrarian protest on the question of tenant right in the 1880s, uh, the evicted tenants question of the 1880s and 1890s, and questions arising from Treasury-funded uh, land purchase legislation uh, launched effectively in 1885 and developed through into the Edwardian period, uh, particularly with the measure of 1903, uh, passed under the Chief Secretaryship of George Wyndham. Taxation designed to fund welfare expenditure ought, in principle, to have appealed as well. If the budget was about redistributive funding of social welfare, then obviously, as we've heard, old age pensions were one focus of this. And as Lord Morgan has uh, indicated, these old age pensions had a disproportionately great significance within Ireland where the standard of living was lower and where the number of elderly was disproportionately large. In 1909, the Irish Times, which uh, it should be said was a unionist newspaper at this time, pointed out dryly that Ireland had 250,000 fewer inhabitants than Scotland and yet registered 74,000 more claims to the pensions. In the words of the Irish Times, this surely is a major tribute to the longevity of our race and to the healthy character of our much-abused climate. Of course, widespread fraud, lying about your age, almost certainly explained uh, the number of pension claims. The civil registration of births hadn't begun in Ireland until uh, the 1860s. The practice of the, the budget was uh, more problematic. 
The old age pensions act of 1908 was seen uh, as seen widely as disproportionately benefiting the Irish. Lord George frequently alludes to this in parliamentary debate. But this in turn was seen in Ireland merely as an act of historical reparation, given the perception, as I've outlined, of overtaxation. The Irish saw the gains of pensions being lost through the impositions of the budget and in particular through the uh, whiskey tax. In terms of land, well, there's a paradox here. The very success of the land agitations that I've been describing briefly, uh, the land war of the early 1880s, the plan of campaign in the later 1880s, the very success of these endeavours meant that Ireland in the Edwardian era was not increasingly a community of tenant farmers, but rather increasingly a nation of small-scale landed proprietors, farmers who had bought out their tenancies using treasury-funded land purchase arrangements. And in this respect, by the later Edwardian era, in the words of one Irish nationalist MP, Stephen Gwynne, uh, Irish nationalists, former tenant farmers, now small-scale proprietors, were easily scared by the very name of land taxes. The proposed doubling of stamp duty on conveyancing or the transfer of, of title was held to be a particular burden for Irish farmers because of the uh, peculiar operations of the land purchase legislation within the country. Taxes on drink appealed in Britain to a significant nonconformist and temperance constituency, but this had less relevance for the Irish. Distilling and brewing were instead regarded as, again quoting Stephen Gwynne, the main manufacturing interest of Southern Ireland, while the retail side of the drink business was incredibly diffused, again Gwynne's words, through the whole shopkeeping community. The drink industry, broadly defined, was an important prop to the Home Rule movement and the minimum duty proposed for licensed premises threatened to hit Ireland with uh, exceptional severity. Now, having said all this, the Irish uh, party at Westminster was up for a confrontation between the Commons and the Lords over the budget. This essentially, I suppose, is the strategic uh, dilemma that uh, the party faces. In responding to Lloyd George uh, uh, during debate on the finance bill in April 1909, Redmond rejected the content of the budget in its application to Ireland, but warmly welcomed the possibility that the budget might provoke a showdown with the House of Lords. And again, on the third reading of the finance bill in November, he argued that, in his words, looking at this from the Irish point of view, bad and all as the increased taxes and the stamps and death duties are for Ireland, they would sink into insignificance and disappear altogether if, in a great constitutional crisis, we were able to take sides effectively against the power of the House of Lords, which permanently blocks every good measure proposed for Ireland. Of course, Irish nationalism is not the, the whole story of the Irish response to the budget. There is the Irish Unionist dimension, and let me take a couple of minutes to uh, outline this for you. Defence spending uh, affected the shipyards and the engineering industry of Unionist Belfast. Old age pensions were no less popular 
amongst the uh, disproportionately large numbers of Irish Unionist septuagenarians. But unlike the Home Rulers, Irish Unionism retained in the Edwardian period a significant uh, landowning community, particularly uh, uh, amongst its leadership. And the proposed land taxes were, of course, deeply unpopular with this still influential aspect uh, of the Unionist high command. Moreover, although there was a strong populist element uh, within uh, Unionism, in particularly the north of Ireland, the House of Lords was seen less as a bastion of privilege than as an essential barrier to home rule. And there was also, of course, a significant Irish Unionist presence in the Lords, as opposed to the representation of Irish nationalism there. Increasingly, Irish Unionism was led in the House of Commons by wealthy professionals, particularly barristers, of whom Sir Edward Carson was perhaps the most prominent and by uh, the spring of 1910 the leader. And we have some uh, clear sense of Carson's private views of the budget through his correspondence and particularly a protracted exchange of correspondence that he conducted with the Marchioness of Londonderry. Writing to Lady Londonderry in June 1909, he described Lloyd George's finance bill as, in his words, a scheme of plunder. I would almost welcome a German invasion to put a sudden end rather than have a gradual decay of our body politic. I'd go back to court work tomorrow to try and earn more super tax for the government and when the work has killed me to leave them more death duties. <laughs> Let me take uh, a couple of moments and uh, say uh, a few words about the fallout uh, of all of this in terms of uh, Irish contexts. The history of the pension issue has been described as one of unintended consequences, certainly in terms of Ireland. And this might be said, I think, of the budget of 1909 as a whole, and indeed some of its predecessors. This is not only the uh, centenary year of the people's budget, it's the bicentenary of the birth of W.E. Gladstone. And one of the motifs of nationalist criticism of Lloyd George was the alleged overtaxation of Ireland, as I've said, which was dated in these arguments back to the fiscal policies of Gladstone through his budgets, particularly that of 1853. In a sense, Gladstone, through the imposition of income tax and whiskey duties on the racked Ireland of the post-famine years, unwittingly contributed to making the crisis of union which he sought to address himself through home rule. Now, there's comparatively little evidence, I think, to suggest that the architecture of the union was uh, a concern of any kind for Lloyd George in 1909. And yet, of course, the people's budget had clear implications for the Union. Though tensions between the Commons and the Lords had been brewing since at least the time of Gladstone's resignation in 1894, the Parliament Act was not, as we've heard, an intended consequence of the people's uh, budget. The scholarly consensus is that Lloyd George expected the Lords to acquiesce, however, tardily. But in an obvious sense, the budget of 1909 led directly to the Parliament Act of 1911 and from thence to the Home Rule Bill of uh, 1912 and the Third Home Rule Crisis. The Irish held the balance of power, as is well known in the Commons, after the January 1910 election, 
and they used the threat of voting down the budget to put pressure on the Liberal government over the veto. No veto, no budget. Now, at one level, the 1909 budget was about paying for pensions, and different scholars have emphasised more generally a connection between welfareism and small unionism, arguing that redistributive fiscal strategies have had a consolidating or have tended towards a consolidating impact upon the union. I think it's often accepted that one of the props of Scots small unionism has been the welfare state. It's also accepted by Irish historians that one of the props of unionism within Northern Ireland has been the acceptance of mainstream uh, British welfare strategies, uh, certainly since the Second World War. And this perhaps highlights the central irony of the budget in its application to Ireland. I'd suggest that the budget was in some respects unionist in its form, in the obvious sense that it treated the United Kingdom uh, as a single unit, but also the more subtle sense that it was raising money for a redistributive welfare expenditure across the United Kingdom. But of course, it also paved the way for home rule and a radicalisation of the British-Irish relationship. Thank you.